Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. สวัสดีครับ Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English Study Group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're starting a new book today. We're in Volume 3, which is titled Foundations in the Teachings or Foundation in the Teachings. This is Volume 3 of the 13-book book series, and we're in Chapters 1 through 10. As we typically do, we'll start with meditation to kind of help prepare the mind, just kind of a short meditation. Then we will have a student read each individual chapter, and then I'll share teachings on those chapters and open up to any questions that you have. If you've read these chapters ahead of time, you're going to get a lot more benefit out of the class because there's the words of the Buddha, there's the reference that goes back to the original Pali Canon, and then there's reflections that I'm sharing to be able to help you to understand further and understand how to be guided to reflect on certain aspects of the teachings of the Buddha to inform your practice and now be able to practice the teachings in a way that leads to your enlightenment, where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly, and let you know that these books that we're studying in this class, they're available for you. You can go to buddhadailywisdom.com, download them there. You can take that file and print it, or you can order these books on Amazon if you'd like. Because as you're reading prior to class and or after, like I mentioned, you just get so much more benefit. So I'll just invite you to join for meditation and then we'll actually start the class shortly thereafter. So if you'd like to take a nice position, I'll just give you just a little bit of guidance to help you in meditation. But we'll just do a short, brief meditation today because we have a good hearty amount of teachings to be able to share today. So just get comfortable with the body, the lower body, hands and arms. The upper body should be erect. This keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. Then close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. I'm going to do some chanting to ease us into meditation, and you're welcome to join along if you know these chants. Then I'll be back with some more guidance. Porto paka one hung Dhamma-ng-namasa-mi 
Supatipano Mahakavato Sahavakasanko Sankang Namami Napmurasapakavato Arato Summa Saputasa Napmurasapakavato Arato Summa Saputasa Napmurasapakavato Arato Summa Saputasa Itipiso Mahakawa Arahang Summa Samoto We chacharanang samuno Sakato roka wito Anu tero purisa Damasati satatawa Manu sanang Hoto pakawati Okay, you should just be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Here you're just establishing the breath. Breathing in in out your breath isn't going to necessarily match up with the guidance that i provide this is just guidance for you this is your practice so wherever you get to the next inhale breathing gradually through the nose and then when you're ready breathe out through the nose establishing a nice natural breath with the breath well established, start fixating the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of the air coming into the nose. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. Whenever the mind moves off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. No need to observe the thought, label it, judge it, analyze it, or try to figure out where it's coming from. Just wherever you observe that the mind has moved off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. 
I'm going to be quiet now and let you focus on the breath, cutting off and letting go any time the mind moves off the breath. Breathing in and out.
ಕವನ್ನಿವಾತೆ transition over to our class time all right so we're going to be covering chapters 1 through 10 today and typically what we do is we have a student read the individual chapter and then I'll share some teachings about that chapter and then open up to any questions that you have I think that Max and or perhaps Tonka are asking to moderate today. So if you guys would like to moderate, you're welcome to. And I'll just turn things over to you guys. I can uh, read the first. Sorry, I would like to, I could read the first chapter if you would like, sir. Okay, go ahead, Max. Chapter one, one who points out treasure. Ananda, I shall not treat you as the potter treats the raw damp clay repeatedly restraining you i sh i shall speak to you ananda repeatedly guiding you of what to avoid i shall speak to you ananda the truly dedicated will stand to the stand the test regard him as one who points out treasure the wise one who seeing your faults guides you of what to avoid stay with this sort of teacher For the one who stays with a teacher of this sort 
things get better, not worse. All right. Thank you, Max. So here the Buddha is talking about his role essentially as a teacher and any teacher who's choosing to share these teachings would essentially have this similar role where the role of a teacher is not to repeatedly restrain their students. That's not what's going to lead to their enlightenment. They need to be able to cultivate the wisdom to understand how to restrain their own mind in certain situations. So a teacher's role isn't to repeatedly restrain you. Instead, we speak to you, we guide you, we provide you guidance and understanding about the teachings. And we do that through classes and courses, retreats, personal guidance. We even nowadays have books and videos and things like this. And then in addition to that, there are some situations where it's helpful that as a student and teacher establish a nice student-teacher relationship, that the teacher helps to point out treasure to the student and guiding a student to understand the areas of their practice that they need to improve. Because oftentimes the unenlightened mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. It doesn't see its own ego or it doesn't see that it's practicing wrong speech or it doesn't see that it's clinging to its perceptions or things like this. So a teacher's role is to point out this treasure and help the student to be able to see this, that they're having challenges in certain ways. And if a student-teacher relationship is well-established, there should be politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect between the student and the teacher, and also between the teacher and the student. And there should be this trust where a student understands that the only motivation that a teacher has is to help their students get to enlightenment. This is one of the reasons why anybody who's truly teaching in order to help people get to enlightenment, there should be no expectation of anything from your students. If you're charging your students or expecting gifts and admiration and things like this from your students, then you're wanting something from your students. But instead, what a teacher should do is just teach for the benefit of the students and out of compassion and loving kindness for the students. And when the students see that a teacher is teaching in that way without any expectation of anything in return, and their only goal, their only interest is to help the student, when they're taking their time, effort, energy, and resources to share the teachings, and point out treasure, the Buddha is saying, okay, the wise one seeing your faults, meaning if the teacher is able to see the areas for you to improve and they're willing to take their time, effort, energy and point this out to you, then stay with this sort of teacher because this person doesn't want anything from you. And as long as you stay with this sort of teacher, things get better, not worse. And of course, students do oftentimes offer donations of their time, effort, energy, and resources to help a teacher because that's something that is needed in order for the teachings to continue. If we enjoy having the teachings in our community and that we would like to bring these teachings into our community more and more, and we enjoy that teachers are willing to share these teachings at no cost, then it's important for us to be able to support them, to be able to have some food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care. Here in Thailand, over multiple generations, they've been donating land and resources and different things to be able to establish this enormous network of temples all throughout their country. 
the land mass of Thailand is less than the state of Texas, and they have about 30 to 40,000 temples here. They have about 300,000 ordained practitioners. And what this affords the Thai people and anybody who's here in Thailand to be able to do is to walk into any temple and be able to find somebody who's dedicated to developing their practice of these teachings and they should be able to find somebody to get help with things that they're challenged with in their life whether it's their work relationships and what's going on at work whether it's their children or their relationships with their life partner or their parents or siblings or whatever it is people have the ability to go and enter into these environments and be able to get help essentially what they've developed is a entire mental health network all throughout the country that is supported by donations when you have the ability to provide support then people provide that support they sometimes just go to the temple and you know give a little bit of money they're not even needing anything or needing to talk to anybody they're just interested in supporting that temple and ensuring that it has the resources that it needs to take care of itself so if we enjoy this kind of opportunity to be able to develop this knowledge and wisdom in our communities then when we see people who are offering teachings in that way it would be wise to really support them and understand that any teacher who's choosing to point out treasure to you it's up to you to be able to identify that treasure and see it and be able to pick it up a teacher should do this with politeness kindness friendliness and respect as they're sharing the teachings with the students because oftentimes a student when they hear from their teacher that yeah you have ego or yeah you have ill will or yeah you have clinging to your perceptions here oftentimes the student's ego can come into play and they can push that away and be resentful that the teacher is actually doing this but remember the teacher is doing this out of compassion for their students and they should be doing that in a polite kind friendly respectful way but this is to help the student and this is why the buddha says the truly dedicated will stand the test because to hear from your teacher certain things that are problematic in your life practice some students can hear those things and then turn away because they might experience painful feelings as a result of hearing this from their teacher and this is because of craving desire attachment and the ego is in there as well so the same things that are hindering the mind in the unenlightened state and getting to enlightenment can be the very same things that when they're interacting with their teacher if they don't have trust and they don't have politeness kindness friendliness and respect towards their teacher those same defilements and same pollutions can cause an individual to push away and go away from the path to enlightenment as well but if you keep in mind that the teacher is pointing out treasure and see these things as treasure then you can accept the guidance with an open mind because this teacher has nothing else of interest other than to help you and to help you get further and further on the path to enlightenment they're not sharing these teachings for money or fame any kind of fortune or any kind of admiration that they want from their students it's only to help the students to improve their life practice improve the condition of their mind and get to enlightenment what questions do you guys have on this chapter okay looks like Tonka you have some questions or maybe some questions coming in from online Yes, teacher David. Um, so just to confirm, I feel that it's very important to develop a personal relationship with your teacher than 
because how would you know like what's happening in someone's life in order to point to the treasure these um, like classes are awesome but if we don't have opportunity to to develop more of a personal relationship where we talk about our everyday life i feel uh, is it essential to have that kind of relationship with the teacher? Because you wouldn't know what's going on in my personal life in order to help me uh, uh, to realize that, that I'm doing something that uh, may be uh, sabotaging my, uh, my uh, path to enlightenment. So like, what, what would you, uh, is there uh, like I'm just trying to find out is do you think once a month uh, scheduling one-on-one -on -one, uh, session with you would be something reasonable to do I agree with you that having a personal relationship with your teacher is vitally important because the more that a student shares with a teacher about the challenges and struggles that they're encountering in daily life the teacher is then able to help their students and a teacher shouldn't be telling a student what to do but they should be guiding them so like if a student says you know should i get a divorce from my husband i would never say yes i would say you know if you choose to get a divorce here's some things to think about and if you choose to stay with your partner here's some things to think about in relationship to the teachings of the buddha so the regular interaction between a teacher and a student is important and helps the teacher to be able to help you I don't think it needs to be on a necessarily kind of regular schedule. It shouldn't be avoided. There shouldn't be complacency. If somebody would like to meet regularly, particularly when they first get started, oftentimes students will schedule kind of weekly or every two weeks when they first get started and then they kind of spread them out. You can eventually get to a point where it's on an as-needed basis, where you're having challenges and you're having struggles. That can be there because a lot of the answers are in the books, in the classes, videos, podcasts, things like this. But also, as you say, being able to understand the teachings in general and then apply them to your specific situations in life requires that personal interaction. So that's why students here in Chiang Mai, they can meet with me in person. People all over the world can schedule appointments with me through the scheduling system. As I do retreats and courses in other parts of the world, students can spend time with me in get help that way too. So I would say, you know, do whatever feels right for you rather than trying to have any fixed schedule or anything like that. But it does help to check in periodically and as needed as you're experiencing challenges. And a student should never feel like they're bothering their teacher or anything like that because I've heard that occasionally from a student. They feel like they might be bothering their teacher. But this is what a teacher does. If I'm not helping one student, I'm going to be helping another student. So the options are there for you and we can develop in our culture and in our communities individuals who are then supporting thousands and thousands of students to be able to get help that they need as they encounter certain struggles and challenges in their life okay thank you very much mm -hmm. no questions on facebook on or youtube at this time okay so let's move to chapter two who would like to read this chapter I can read that one. Okay. Rare that one obtains the human state. Monks, suppose that this great earth had become one mass of water and a man would throw a ring with a single hole upon it. 
an easterly wind would drive it westward, a westerly wind would drive it eastward, a northerly wind would drive it southward, southerly wind would drive it northward. There was a blind turtle which would come to the surface once every hundred years. What do you think, Mons? Would that blind turtle come into the surface once every hundred years, insert its neck into that ring with a single hole? It would be rare, venerable sir, that that blind turtle coming to the surface once every hundred years would insert its neck into that ring with a single hole. So two months, it is rare that one obtains the human state, rare that a Tagata, an Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, arises in the world, rare that the teachings and discipline proclaimed by the Tagata shines in the world. You have obtained that human state, months. A Tagata, an Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, has arisen in the world. The teachings and discipline proclaimed by the Tagata shines in the world. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand. This is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Tonka. So here the Buddha is helping his students understand how rare it is to obtain this human existence because in this human existence this is the most ideal time to be able to get to enlightenment in order to get to this human existence you would have needed to make a lot of really wholesome decisions in the past to be able to get to this human state because in the various realms like hell animal and afflicted spirits you're unable to get to enlightenment in those realms you're going to need to get to a human or heavenly birth in order to get to enlightenment those beings in the lower realms aren't able to cultivate their mind to the point to get to enlightenment but they can at least cultivate enough to be able to get to the human realm and then in the human realm and heavenly realms we can attain enlightenment from these realms the heavenly realm tends to be fairly complacent because they're only experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings and those beings tend to not be motivated to get to enlightenment and they're oftentimes reborn in other realms and needing to make their way to enlightenment in ultimately the human realm and they can even be reborn from the heavenly realm down into the lower realms so it's not the ideal place to be in the heavenly realm as some people may teach instead this human realm is the ideal place to be able to learn and practice and get to enlightenment because we experience all three types of feelings like pleasant feelings painful feelings and neither painful nor pleasant so we have this built-in motivation to be able to be encouraged and motivated to get to enlightenment particularly those painful feelings because we don't like that anger sadness frustration irritation annoyance guilt shame fear the stress the anxiety and these other painful feelings that are experienced that tends to be built-in motivation for us to get to enlightenment so this first part of this discourse the buddha is explaining how utterly rare it is 
for someone to get to the human realm. And now that you're in this human existence, you shouldn't be complacent and allow it to go to waste. Because if you can imagine the entire earth being flooded, which is what the Buddha is describing here, and there's a single ring on the surface of the earth and it's being blown all over the place. And there's this blind turtle that comes to the surface once every 100 years. How likely is it that that turtle is going to put his head through that ring? It's very, very rare. So that's how rare it is that you would actually get to this human existence. So really value it and treasure it and don't allow it to go to waste and not being complacent. Then the Buddha was reminding his students not only how rare it is to get to the human state, but how rare it is for a Tathagata to exist in the world. A Tathagata is a Buddha. The Buddha referred to himself as a Tathagata, which means the one who's discovered the truth or the one who shares the truth or one who speaks the truth. This is a Tathagata, a Buddha. They are an Arahant, which an Arahant is the fourth stage of enlightenment, someone who's eliminated all ten fetters. A Tathagata, a Buddha, has done that on their own without the help of any teachers or any guides. And then once they awaken to enlightenment, they dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their teachings and countless people get to enlightenment during their lifetime. And then they preserve the teachings in such a way that countless more people can get to enlightenment after their death. You can experience becoming an arahant where you've eliminated all 10 fetters, but you're going to need a teacher. You're going to need a teacher to point out treasure to you because you're not always going to see the condition of your mind, but a Buddha can actually do this work on their own. They're an arahant. They are enlightened. That's what an arahant is, someone who's enlightened. But they've done this in a unique way and they take on a certain purpose based on their compassion for the world. They choose to dedicate the rest of their life because they know that it's only them that have discovered these teachings on their own. And a Buddha has deep, 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 deep wisdom about the path to enlightenment. That's why we call them a perfectly enlightened one. A perfectly enlightened one is a Buddha, someone who has deep profound wisdom about the path to enlightenment. They can speak very precise, very concise, very deeply about the path to enlightenment because they've discovered these teachings on their own and they know what it takes to get to enlightenment. In the rest of their life, they're essentially putting lights down along this path, illuminating the path for as many people as possible to be able to clearly walk towards enlightenment. Where someone else who chooses to get to enlightenment, they can still get to enlightenment, but maybe 10 or 20% of what they know didn't actually lead to their enlightenment. There's still some extra baggage around. So they're not perfectly enlightened. But a Buddha, having experienced enlightenment on their own without the guidance of any teachers, if they're doing any particular practice and it doesn't work to improve the condition of their mind, they discard it. Where a other being who is an enlightened, who's an arahant, they might still hold on to that thing just out of admiration for their teacher or respect for their teacher or something like that. So by the time an individual is a Tathagata or a Buddha, they're perfectly enlightened and that's all they know is the path to enlightenment. So it's very rare to get to this human state and it's very rare to exist during the lifetime of a Buddha. So this is like two things that come together that makes the conditions very perfect for someone to actually be able to get to enlightenment. This would be the ideal time to get to enlightenment because during the lifetime of a Buddha, 
the teachings are going to shine in the world because of their deep wisdom being able to speak about the teachings with such preciseness and conciseness they're going to be able to share their teachings in such a way that they really shine in the world and this is going to help a lot of people be able to get to enlightenment so the buddha is reminding his students of this rare human state that they're existing during the lifetime of a buddha and the teachings are shining in the world for everybody to be able to then learn and practice and then the buddha points to the four noble truths here because the four noble truths is the beginning of the path to enlightenment so that establishes right view where you understand the problem in the unenlightened mind the cause the elimination and the path forward so not only is he reminding them how rare the human state is that they're in existence during the lifetime of a buddha and that the teachings are shining in the world but he's pointing to the four noble truths and saying that's the place to start that's the beginning of the path where he says this is discontentedness this is the cause of discontentedness this is the elimination and this is the way leading to the elimination so there's details above and beyond this about the four noble truths where the buddha fully explains the four noble truths but he's not going to do that here he's just going to point to them because he's already explained them in other parts of his teachings what questions do you guys have on this chapter tonka has her hand raised in zoom go ahead tonka thank you max i was just wondering teacher david because you always tell us not to believe anything but to verify it for ourselves. Like, is there anything that we could do to verify um, this statement that uh, human existence is rare? I don't see that I can do anything. I can mm-hmm. just believe this. I'm not saying I don't believe. I'm just mm-hmm. saying because we always state, don't believe, verify for yourself and mm-hmm. reflect on that. And I tried to do that and I don't see how I can do that in this case. Yeah, one thing you can do is you can look at how many animals are in the animal realm versus how many humans are in the human realm. And right now, what scientists tell us is that the animals that exist in the animal realm today is only 1% of the animals that once existed, that 99% of the animals that once existed in the world have now gone extinct and that they no longer exist. So you can look at we're up to 8 billion people in the human realm and there's many 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 more animals in the animal realm than that then that's only one percent that exists today so you know you explode that times 99 and you can see how enormous the animal realm is versus the human realm so there you can see that the human existence is very rare okay thank you very much Mm -hmm. you're welcome uh i see that there's a question in YouTube. I don't know, Tonka, or I can, I'll read it real quick. James on YouTube asks, uh, it is rare that one obtains the human state. Why the population of mankind increased so quickly in this past two century? Yeah. So as the human realm is shrinking, as I just mentioned, 99% of the animals that once existed are no longer in existence. As that shrinks, then the human realm and other realms are going to expand so that's what we're seeing whether you know happening in the last 100 years or 200 years 
during the lifetime of the Buddha, he described that 2,500 years after his death, there would be a new Buddha that arises. And that date is 2017. And in my opinion, we're seeing this transitioning of beings from the animal realm to the human realm, because now this is the ideal opportunity for as many humans to be able to get to enlightenment as possible as this new Buddha is in the world. Okay, and then uh, Huldun has a question on Zoom. Go ahead. Okay, thank you, Max. Uh, I feel some contradiction. How is it rare to be in the human state? And sometimes when you say everyone we encounter might be our family in a previous life. And also when you say all the seawater is breast milk we have drunk. Yes. So we've had countless rebirths in our past. And the Buddha uses all the water of the sea to represent all the milk that we've drank or all the water of the sea to represent the blood that we've experienced. But those existences in the past weren't all in the human realm. They are very rare that we're in the human realm. So just because we say that someone was previously our mother, father, brother, sister, son, daughter, or some other relative, it doesn't mean that they were in the human realm. So like when you and I were lizards, Kaldon, we were sisters or something like that. Or, you know, when Max and I were monkeys, you know, we were brothers or maybe we were husband and wife, who knows, right? Um, so this is what we encounter in our previous lives that in our animal existences and potentially previous human existences, people have previously been our relatives. And we've had so many of those countless rebirths that it would be impossible to find somebody in existence today that hasn't previously been one of your relatives. I also feel that your face is very familiar, like I know you Yes, we can have those experiences that our mind is having certain memories, residual memories from our past lives. And we can feel that the people that we're around are similar people that we're around in the past, either in animal existences or human existences or other existences, because beings tend to be reborn at the same time that we're together in other lives. They tend to be reborn at the same time. So like my mother from my previous life was my grandmother in this life. My mother in my previous life, her husband was her brother in this life. And we have situations like this that certain people can discern. So this is very common. It's very normal for people who have seen their past lives. They can understand these kinds of things about their life. Okay. Mm -hmm. I believe that is all the questions we have. I guess I do have uh, one question that I thought of uh, that kind of piggybacks with uh, Kulun's uh, question. Um, so we get, uh, like, you know, we can, like, if we're out somewhere, let's say, and we bump into someone and it's like, oh man, you, you look familiar. I, I swear I know you from somewhere, but we just can't place it. Maybe that could be from like a previous life or something like that. Potentially. The thing is, is that, you know, what's happened in a previous life is in the previous life. It can help you confirm that the cycle of rebirth is true. It can also help you understand some of the cravings that you're having in this life being from previous lives and things like this. 
But for all intents and purposes, what happened in the past is in the past. So it's not something that the average person needs to obsess about, not that you are, but needs to obsess about to think about the past lives. But these are things that do occur. We have things like deja vu that are residual memories bubbling up to the surface of the mind where it's something that's happening right now in this life. You know it didn't happen in this life. It must have happened some other time. So we can have these residual memories that the mind experiences bubbling up, particularly as you're starting to awaken the mind more and more. You can have these type of experiences and just think of it as completely normal, helping to confirm the cycle of rebirth for you. And then just put it aside and just focus on the present moment and getting to enlightenment now because this will help you to see that, yes, if you don't get to enlightenment in this life, there's going to be rebirth for sure. Thank you, sir. Uh, I believe that's all the questions we have right now. Okay, so we'll go to chapter three. Someone would like to read this one? I can read it. Consciousness conditions name and form. Uh, I have said consciousness conditions name and form, and this is the way that should be understood, Ananda. If consciousness were not to come into the mother's womb, would name and form develop there? No, venerable sir. Or if consciousness, having entered the mother's womb, were to be deflected, would name and form come to birth in this life? No, venerable sir. And if the consciousness of such a tender young being, boy or girl, were thus cut off, would name and form grow, develop, and mature? No, venerable sir. Therefore, Ananda, just this name, con namely consciousness, is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition of name and form. I have said name and form conditions consciousness, and this is the way that should be understood, Ananda. If consciousness did not find a resting place in name and form, would there subsequently be an arising and coming to be of birth, aging, death, and discontentedness? No, venerable sir. Therefore, Ananda, just this, namely name and form, is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition of consciousness. Thus far then, Ananda, we can trace birth and decay death and falling into other states and being reborn thus far extends the way of designation thus far extends the way of concepts thus far is the sphere of understanding thus far the round goes as far as can be discerned in this life namely to name and form together with consciousness all right thank you max so the Buddha here is pointing to a section of what we call dependent origination. Dependent origination is the highest, most ultimate truth that the Buddha shares, where he shares the 12 interlinking aspects that lead to discontentedness and rebirth. When you're learning about discontentedness, when you first start 
on the path to enlightenment, you're learning about it through the Four Noble Truths. And the Buddha is giving you a window into understanding what the root cause of discontentedness is, which is craving, desire, attachment, those wants, expectations, that mental longing and strong eagerness, the clinging, the holding on to things. But then as you progress, you learn about the three unwholesome roots of craving, anger, and ignorance. And you learn about the 10 fetters. And ultimately, you get to a point where you learn what's called dependent origination. This is going to be in volume 5, chapter 14. When we get to that one, you're going to learn about dependent origination. And you'll see these 12 interlinking steps, which craving is in there as one of those steps. But there's these other steps that one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And ultimately, the Buddha explains why the mind is experiencing continuous rebirth and why you're experiencing discontentedness. And essentially, when you understand this, then you understand the solution of how to fix it. So here he's pointing to one aspect of dependent origination to help you understand birth, aging, death, and discontentedness. Just one aspect of it. Consciousness is the mind. Name and form, which he describes independent origination, is essentially the physical body. He gives five aspects of what name and form is, but just for now, until you study dependent origination, you can think of it as the physical body. And what he's explaining here is that there needs to be a consciousness that's in existence to then be able to come into the womb of a woman to be able to take on this physical form. So when there's an egg and a sperm, and then there's a consciousness, these three things coming together is now going to be a living being at conception inside the womb of a woman. And the Buddha is explaining here that if a consciousness enters into the womb of a woman and it's deflected, would name and form come to birth? in this life. What he's explaining here is essentially a miscarriage, that if there was a consciousness that was coming into the womb and it was deflected, would that physical body continue to grow inside the mother's womb? And the answer is no, of course it wouldn't. We know what a miscarriage is, right? So then he says, okay, if consciousness such as a tender young boy or girl was thus cut off. So once it's in the womb, if something happened to that consciousness, would the physical body grow, develop, and mature? And the answer is no, right? So what he's essentially getting to is helping you see that consciousness is the root cause and condition that leads to rebirth, that leads to taking up of this body. In order for this body to be taken up and come into existence, there needs to be a consciousness. And this is why he's teaching to train the consciousness, train the mind. Because as long as the mind is holding on with craving and clinging, holding on to this world, lacking certain wisdoms of training the mind to let go, it's going to continue to come back into this world over and over and over again. It's not until the mind is purified or this consciousness is purified that it no longer then takes on a new physical body or name and form. So that's where he says, if the consciousness did not find a resting place in name and form, so if it didn't find a physical body in the womb, then there would not be this birth, aging, death, and discontentedness. This is where you can start to understand a bit about how 
discontentedness and rebirth are interlinked and how by training the mind to eliminate discontentedness, not only are you eliminating that, but you're also eliminating birth, aging, and death. So there's only one reason why we all die. It's because of birth. Because of birth, we all are going to die. Oftentimes, you know, people say we die of cancer, we die of leukemia, we die of a car accident or different things like this, but we're all dying because of birth. That's the root cause of why we keep dying. So in order to solve this problem of aging, sickness, and death, and discontentedness, there needs to be this training of the mind purify the consciousness so that now the consciousness is no longer holding on to this world, continuing to come back and take up another name and form. Because when we eliminate birth, we eliminate aging, sickness, death, and discontentedness. All of that gets eliminated. And you'll see these 12 interlinking steps when we get to dependent origination. You can independently verify these, that you can see the Buddha is speaking the truth about what leads to birth, aging, sickness, and death, and what leads to discontentedness. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Tonka has her hand raised. Go ahead, Tonka. Uh, we have James asking uh, in YouTube, if consciousness were not to come into the mother's form, that means sperm have consciousness, and then following or sperm, ovum, and consciousness are three parts of rebirth yeah there are three different things that need to come together in order to create a living being so in terms of a human being there needs to be an egg there needs to be a sperm and then the third thing is the consciousness that comes into that name and form so the egg and sperm are creating the name and form and then the consciousness or the mind needs to come in and take up that name and form. That's how a being comes into existence in the human realm. And the Buddha explains this. He doesn't describe it as an egg and a sperm. He describes it in other words that were used during that lifetime, but he describes it in other teachings that you guys will see as part of this program. Okay, thank you. And I have one question. I'm getting a little bit confused with terms consciousness and craving. Like as far as I understood so far, uh, it's just craving that survives and it's just the craving and residual memories that are uh, getting kind of reborn, that, that uh, coming back. But here we are using the word consciousness. So is there a consciousness as such and craving is something else or like uh, if you can clarify uh, uh, those two terms because to me it's a little bit different thinking of consciousness and th thinking of craving are we uh, are we talking about the same thing or it's something different in this uh, chapter sure these are two different things consciousness and craving they're two different things Consciousness and the mind are the same thing. Think of consciousness and or the mind as being the cardboard box. The craving and residual memories are the contents in the cardboard box. So each cardboard box is different. There's different sizes, different shapes, different colors, different texture. But at death, this cardboard box disseminates 
but there's craving and residual memories that now move into a completely new cardboard box. So the cardboard box is the consciousness or the mind. The cravings, the residual memories, those are separate from the consciousness itself. They're existing inside of the consciousness or the mind. So how to think then, where does that consciousness that is look, looking for resting place in, uh, in mother's form, where does it, where does that come from? If it, that's not something that survives uh, the death, like where, where is that consciousness coming from? Yeah, it's a new consciousness that gets created. The Buddha's teachings on dependent origination shows you that linking, that it starts with ignorance, then it moves to volitional formations, and then I think it moves to consciousness at that point, it moves to name and form, then the six sense spaces and so forth. I haven't memorized each individual step, but when you see it in writing, you'll see he shows these interlinking steps. And you can go look at that now. It's in volume five, chapter 14. So, you know, he doesn't explain the individual structures of where it comes from, but he explains the conditions that lead to it being created. So ignorance or the unknowing of true reality leads to volitional formations or choices and decisions that are unwise. And then this leads to the creation of a consciousness. That's what I remember from the sequencing of steps. And then name and form is the fourth part of dependent origination. So the consciousness gets created. A new consciousness ha uh, has been created. It's not something that, uh, that uh, survives the death or, or like it, it is actually created. It has beginning and the end. Exactly, because consciousness is impermanent, just like everything else. So it's going to arise, it's going to change, and it's going to fade away. So this consciousness that we're now talking to that's labeled as Tonka, at the end of this life, that consciousness is going to go away. It's going to fade away because of impermanence. And then if there's rebirth, then whatever the contents are in this mind, the craving and residual memories, because of the ignorance that still exist because if the person still has craving, then there's also still ignorance in the mind. Because of the ignorance, it's led to certain choices and decisions or volitional formations, which then leads to the creation of a new consciousness. Okay, okay, so a new consciousness is being created uh, if there is any cravings. Exactly. Okay. Craving is the fuel that causes rebirth. And when you see dependent origination, you'll see the entire sequencing. But the whole reason why craving exists is because of ignorance. If it wasn't for ignorance, craving wouldn't exist. So the very top line of dependent origination is ignorance. And that's why the highest priority on this path to enlightenment is to cultivate wisdom, which is the exact opposite of ignorance, because that's what's going to unlink all of these 12 interlinking steps of dependent origination. That's what's going to unravel this whole process of the mind experiencing discontentedness in continuous rebirth. Okay, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. I did see some questions in YouTube before my computer crashed. I'm not sure. Tonka, can you double check? There was a born and washing machine had questions and whatnot. Those may have been answered through your questions, Tonka. I but uh, sorry, um, I don't see that much. Oh, okay. Um, 
I see the question here, Max. I can read it. Do understand it is not spirit or other form going to be left after dead. So my recent human mind to be lived forever, whatever or regardless, whatever living be in the next life. Yeah, I think we've answered that as part of Tonka's question that this consciousness that you currently have, it's not permanent. It has arisen, it has changed, and it will fade away and no longer exist. So there'll be a new consciousness if there's rebirth. But the ultimate goal is to not experience rebirth so that you can get to enlightenment in this life, eliminate the craving, anger, and ignorance, those 10 fetters, experience enlightenment in this life, and then there won't be a next life. But if there is a next life, it will be a completely new consciousness, just like a new cardboard box. Say this first cardboard box got rained on, it dilapidated, it can no longer hold these contents of craving and residual memories, so it now needs to move into this new fresh cardboard box. That's the new consciousness or the new mind. Okay, and then uh, Kuldun has a question on Zoom. So if it is rare to be reborn in the human realm, would that mean if someone didn't attain enlightenment in this life would probably be reborn in the animal realm? That's most likely, particularly if somebody hasn't been learning and practicing these teachings, that they will be reborn into the animal realm. But if someone is learning and practicing these teachings and they haven't gotten to enlightenment, and even if they aren't in one of those four stages of enlightenment, there's the potential for them to be reborn back into the human realm and or into the heavenly realm. But even people who are learning and practicing, if they're not quite yet developed enough to at least establish right view, the Buddha talks about any being who has wrong view that they're going to be reborn in hell or the animal realm. So that's a lot of beings in the world that have wrong view that would be potentially reborn in the hell realm and animal realm. And he talks about how it's much more likely for a being to be reborn into those lower realms, then come back into the human realm or be reborn into the heavenly realm. But through learning and practicing teachings, you can either get to enlightenment in this life, you can get to enlightenment at death, or there can be an improved rebirth through you practicing and training the mind. So you might come back into the human realm in an improved rebirth, you know, better conditions in terms of your ability to sustain your life, maybe different experiences with certain parents that have certain wisdom that can help you in life. You could experience an improved rebirth into the heavenly realm and things like this. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. I believe, that, well, there's a question in Zoom. I'm not sure if, yeah, I'll ask it. Uh, how can I become dog next life? I'm not sure that I would suggest becoming a dog in in a next life. It would be very unwise to choose to do that. There's not the ability to exactly choose what your next rebirth is. That's not something that has ever been taught or something that is possible. So what I would encourage you to do is learn and practice these teachings to be able to get to enlightenment in this life so that there is no longer any rebirth. Would that be maybe like craving for form, like you're craving to be maybe a certain animal or a certain whatever? 
Exactly. That's one of the fetters, number six, which is desire for form being reborn into the animal realm or the human realm. So you would need to eliminate any kind of craving or longing or yearning to be reborn in any of the five realms in order to eliminate the sixth and seventh fetter. Thank you, sir. I believe that is all the questions we have at the moment. Okay. So now we're off to chapter four. Paying homage to the six directions. Well, venerable sir, how should one pay homage respect to the six directions according to the noble discipline? It would be good if the perfectly enlightened one were to teach me the proper way to pay homage respect to the six directions according to the noble discipline. Young householder, it is by abandoning the four defilements of action, by not doing evil from the four causes, by not following the six ways of wasting one's substance through avoiding these 14 evil ways that the noble disciple covers the six directions and by such practice becomes a conqueror of both worlds so that all will go well with him in this world and the next. And at the breaking up of the body after death, he will go to a good destination, a heavenly world. What are the four defilements of action that are abandoned? Taking life is one. Taking what is not given is one. Sexual misconduct is one. False speech is one. These are the four defilements of action that he abandons. What are the four causes of evil from which refrain? Evil action springs from craving, it springs from anger, ill will, it springs from ignorance, unknowing of true reality, it springs from fear. If the noble disciple does not act out of craving, anger, <clears throat> ignorance, <clears throat> unknowing of true, rea true reality or fear, he will not do evil from any of the four causes. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And which are the six ways of wasting one's substance that he does not follow? Addiction to strong drink and sloth-producing drugs, substances that cause heedlessness, is one way of wasting one's substance. Uh, hunt, uh, haunting the streets at unfitting times is one. Attending fairs is one. Being addicted to gambling is one. Keeping unwholesome company is one. Habitual idleness is one. And how, householder's son, does the noble disciple protect the six directions? These six things are to be regarded as the six directions. The east denotes mother and father. The south denotes teachers. The west denotes wife and children. The north denotes friends and companions. The nadir down uh, denotes servants workers and helpers the zenith up denotes ascetics and brahmins i'm going to pause you there max so that i can teach this first part before we go into the next part so thank you for reading that so what the buddha is doing here is he would oftentimes encounter people who were doing certain things related to the hindu tradition because he was 
born into a region of the world that was practicing Hinduism. And they had certain rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that they were doing connected to those teachings of Hinduism. And when the Buddha would come around, people would maybe be in the midst of practicing that or getting ready to practice those rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. And they knew that the Buddha had these very wise teachings that was helping a lot of people. And they would oftentimes ask him, like, how can I do what I'm doing right now, but do it in a way that is more in line with your teachings that would actually lead me to an improved condition of mind with this enlightened mental state. So paying homage in the six directions was something that was practiced as part of the Hindu tradition. And now this person is asking the Buddha to explain this to them in a way that is beneficial so that they can improve their life. And this is what the Buddha is going to be getting into when he talks about these six directions in these different groups of relationships. But first, he talks about these four defilements of action. He talks about this causes of evil, and he talks about wasting one substance because we need to be sure that those things are taken care of, which is going to help us to then practice these other teachings that he's about to deliver. So what are the four defilements of action that are to be abandoned? Here, he's basically talking about the first four precepts from the five precepts, taking life, taking what is not given, sexual misconduct, and false speech. Now remember, the five precepts go into a lot more detail about this. And that's where you would be able to glean all the benefit and value that the Buddha has to say about the five precepts. Where here, he's just talking about it in summary form, and he's pointing to those first four precepts rather than go through all those details here. He's talked about them in other places, and people know about those in other places. So as long as one is causing harm through their moral conduct, through their actions, that harm is going to come back to them. So whenever you're studying the five precepts or studying anything around moral conduct, you should never look at it as rules or commandments or anything like that. The Buddha didn't teach in that way. What he's doing when he's describing the moral conduct is he's describing things that you can do, decisions that you make that cause harm, and therefore harm is going to come to you. As long as you're lacking the wisdom of something like the five precepts, you're going to be out there making decisions that are unwise, and then this harm is going to come to you. So the first step is eliminating these four defilements of action where you're not killing, you're not stealing, you're not having sexual misconduct, and you're not lying. That's the first four things that he talks about to purify here. Then the next four causes that he's talking about, the first three, he's talking about the three unwholesome roots of craving, anger, and ignorance, or this unknowing of true reality. Because as long as you're making decisions through craving, anger, and ignorance, you're going to be causing harm, and harm's going to be experienced as well. They're going to be unwise decisions. Because what craving tends to promote is a very selfish mind, where now this individual is making decisions through their own selfish desires. And now, because of making decisions through the selfish desires, informed and motivated by craving, now when you make those decisions and put those out into the world, they're going to produce unwholesome results. And the same thing with anger. In those lesser versions like frustration, irritation, annoyance, and others, as long as you're making decisions when that's in your mind and you're making decisions based on those things, then it's going to cause 
unwise decisions, which leads to unwholesome results. And both of these are happening, the craving and anger, because of the ignorance and the unknowing of true reality. If it was not for the ignorance or unknowing of true reality, craving and anger wouldn't exist. So these three things together, the pollutions in the mind, are now polluting your decisions that you make about certain things in your life, and then that's producing unwholesome results for you. Fear is a discontent feeling, but as long as somebody is making decisions through fear, once again, it's going to create problematic decision-making if you're making decisions just out of fear. So you would need to purge those things from your life practice in order to get to improvement and being able to make the other decisions that he's gonna ultimately talk about later in the teachings. Then the next thing that he talks about is wasting one's substance. The best way to think about one's substance is your vitality. You know, maybe a slang word that we might use is like your mojo or something like that, if you're familiar with that movie reference. But your vitality is your substance, right? If you are addicted to strong drink or sloth-producing drugs, substances that cause heedlessness, this is going to waste away your vitality. And it's going to make it very challenging for you to make wise decisions in the world as long as the mind is polluted with substances that cause heedlessness. Then he talks about haunting the streets at unfitting times. This would be like going outside at like late hours of night, like midnight, 2 a.m., things like this, that the cities in the world become a different place. Even a wonderful place, as wonderful as Chiang Mai, that at nighttime, the streets become a different type of place. And if you're outside at that time of day, you're going to experience unwholesome results based on that unwise decision. So the Buddha talks in other parts of his teachings, if you're walking towards the light, essentially, that you should go outside during the daylight hours. If somebody's trying to get away from this darkness of the unenlightened mental state, why would you go outside when these unwholesome things and unwise decisions are being made oftentimes really late at night. Now, there are some people, of course, that work at night. You know, they might need to travel and go to work, but they're not haunting the streets. You know, they're at work at these certain times. So keep that one in mind that that is wasting your vitality because if you're out midnight, 2 a.m., then you're going to end up sleeping most of the day. And when you wake up, you might feel kind of droggy and not well. This is wasting your vitality. Attending fairs. Essentially, this is entertainment. During the lifetime of the Buddha, that was a kind of main form of entertainment. Nowadays, we have TVs and movies and concerts and shows and all kinds of other entertainment that we're involved in. So the ordained practitioners are taught to not do any of those kinds of things at all because that creates the most conducive environment to train the mind to get to enlightenment. But as household practitioners, there's ways for you to manage this. Essentially, the reason why the Buddha taught not to attend these things for the ordained practitioners is because as long as the mind has craving, desire, attachment, and it's going to these shows to get those pleasant feelings, then the mind can continue to crave and long and yearn for these kinds of things. Essentially, what the mind does is it has a certain amount of boredom or loneliness, and we might decide to indulge in entertainment in order to cover up that boredom and loneliness, but that doesn't actually solve the problem. The way that you solve the problem of the boredom and loneliness is train the mind to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment that's producing that boredom and loneliness. So as an ordained practitioner, 
they're going to eliminate all entertainment from their practice. But as a household practitioner, when you're ready to address it, you can actually go a period of time where you're not indulging in entertainment, maybe six months, a year, two years. And then as your mind comes into this peacefulness and joy, and you notice that there's not the boredom and loneliness in there, you can actually bring the entertainment back into your life. But you'll probably do this very sparingly because by that point, your mind will be so well trained and you'll have such concentration and you'll be involved in other things that are more fulfilling even than entertainment. But you might listen to an occasional music or you might watch the movies or you might take your child or grandchild to go see some show or something like that. So in the ordained lifestyle, they're living a much more disciplined life in terms of making environment much more conducive to get to enlightenment. But you can replicate some of these things in your life by looking at what they do and then replicate it in your life. So this is one of those areas where you can do that. And there's other areas that you can look at the ordained lifestyle and kind of extrapolate certain things that they do as part of their lifestyle. You can implement that and integrate that into your life for a period of time, get the training and the benefit from that. And then once you have, then you can kind of open things back up again. And I gave example just this morning in class about like eating and eliminating central desire. One of the things that the ordained practitioners do is they walk down the street and they just accept any kind of food that's offered to them. This way they don't have preference for specific foods and it trains their mind to not crave certain specific foods and they just eat whatever is given to them. So as a household practitioner, we're not doing that. We're not walking down the street and people giving us food, but you can actually replicate this. If you understand what they're doing and why they're doing it, then you can replicate it in your life where you take your own mind out of the decision-making process about what foods that you're eating for a period of time, whether it's six months, a year, two years, or what have you. You can go into restaurants and as you're at a restaurant, you can ask the waiter, you know, what do you suggest? And they say, oh, I would suggest this. And you're like, all right, I'll take that. Even if it's something that you would never ever order, and even maybe you dislike that particular food, what you learn is to look at food as just substance to maintain the health of this body. That it's not to please the tongue and please the mind, that it's just to maintain the body. But as long as you eat out of emotion, where the mind is craving and longing and yearning for specific foods, then there's gonna be some attachment there. And you're gonna say, I like these foods and I dislike these foods, and then the mind has the ability to get discontent when it doesn't get what it wants. So you can do this kind of thing. You can even order meal plans. A lot of these countries nowadays, you can order a meal plan where you get two or three meals per day and you aren't involved in picking the food whatsoever. It's just a set menu and it just gets delivered to you. And this is a way for you to replicate some of the things from the ordained lifestyle. And then when you go through that training for a period of time, then you observe that the mind is able to eat any and all food and now you can open back up and you can start to now select your own food and you can train the mind to not want specific foods or not to crave and long and yearn for entertainment. The other thing he talks about here is addiction to gambling because that's going to waste your substance because you earn certain money, you're making certain money in your income through your occupation and now if you go out and gamble it away, you're not going to be able to purchase the things that you need for life. Keeping unwholesome company like unwholesome friends and companions and associates, you'll be influenced by that. So as long as you're doing that, it's going to waste your substance. 
And then habitual idleness is another one. This is like dullness, lethargic condition, not interested and motivated to move your life forward. So you're not interested in that, but you're also not interested in doing things with craving, desire, attachment. There's some cultures that might teach you, you know, nose to the grindstone, push, 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 push. That's not sustainable. That's not going to work. But also habitual idleness is going to waste away your substance and your vitality to be able to move your life forward. So you'd like to bring the mind and bring your practice to the middle where you're pursuing goals, objectives, or interests, but you also know how to relax and you know how to rest as well. You might need to train your mind how to rest and relax, but you're not interested in it going to this habitual idleness, but you're also not interested in pursuing things with such craving that you exhaust yourself, which isn't sustainable either. So bringing your lifestyle to this balanced life where you can be in the middle and more and more you'll get used to being in that middle. Now the Buddha is going to start talking about these different relationships and he's going to talk about things that we can practice in these relationships and how we practice. And then he's going to talk about the results of you practicing a certain way. And this is going to be the result of that. And what he's explaining to you is this natural law of gamma. Everything that he's teaching is essentially coming back to the natural law of gamma in one way or another, this cause and effect or action and result. That's what he's explaining in the first part of this discourse. And that's what he's going to now explain in the rest of this discourse as well. But let me see what questions you guys have on what I've shared so far. Tonka has her hand raised. Go ahead, Tonka. Thank you, Max. I believe that you, teacher, already answered this question, but you may want to add something to this. James is saying, why haunting the streets at unfitted time, attending fairs are two ways of wasting substances. Yeah, so if you're out at midnight, 2 a.m., you're going to be involved in activities and situations that are unwise for you to be there. And this is where a lot of unwholesome things happen in the world. You know, this is where you can get hit by a drunk driver, for example. You know, people could be coming out of bars and other things. There can be different fighting and activities that are happening. So it would be unwise for you to be outside at you know those late hours. If you choose to do it, it's up to you, but just understand the karma related to it, that this is where oftentimes a lot of unwholesome things happen. If you talk to police officers about the graveyard shift versus what transpires during the daylight hours, it's like night and day, literally, right? And then we also talked about the entertainment and fairs as well. Thank you very much. So, so I have a question, sir. Uh, so something as uh, like walking your dog at night, let's say, um, would be not a wise choice. You'd want to use discernment and walk your dog during the day. You're doing something that's beneficial, but you're doing it at the wrong time of day and you could get hit by a car that maybe doesn't see you or something like that. Is that correct? Exactly. You know, you would like to spend the vast majority of your time if you're going to go outside in the daylight hours, because if you're walking towards the light, you would like to live in the light. Whereas if you're regularly going outside at 
dark times, this is where dark things occur. So you would like to surround yourself in environments and situations where things are positive and bright and uplifting. So as long as you're going outside at what the Buddha is describing as unfitting times, I think we've all probably haunted the streets at unfitting times at some point in the past. And, you know, if you've done those things and you've seen the unwholesome results that have occurred during those situations, this is the reason why is because of the natural law of gamma of cause and effect. So we can use wise decision making and choose to not go outside. Or if we do need to go outside, like some places get dark uh, as early as five o'clock or six o'clock during the winter hours, and you may need to go outside. So that's where you do it very cautiously, not with fear. But yeah, if you're going to walk your dog, you know, probably take a flashlight, you know, wear some reflective clothing, don't wear all black and things like this. So you can improve the situation. If you understand what you're encountering and you're consciously making a decision to go outside, then you can make some wise decisions to improve your situation. So the Buddha never tells you do this and don't do this. He's really just cluing you into the natural law of gamma. And then with that understanding, you're going to make decisions based on your life and what you would like to accomplish in the world. Thank you, sir. Kuldun uh, on Zoom asks, what about spending time on social media? Yeah, this is another thing that you can really shrink down because during the lifetime of the Buddha, household practitioners were so busy with just sustaining their life. You know, think about getting water, walking from your house to the well, filling up a bucket or two, carrying that, dumping it into a trough or a basin and doing that several times a day just to be able to get water in your house. And some people had to do that every day or every two or three days just to be able to get water in their house. Nowadays, we kind of take it for granted that we can just walk over and open up a spigot and boom, we've got water. So we've organized our life in humanity to such a point with food systems and water systems and electricity and machines that can do things like washing our clothes and things like this, that we have so much more time in our life than they had during the lifetime of the Buddha. So we tend to fill it up with things that are unbeneficial, like just searching and surfing social media. And what you'll observe is that if you can shrink that stuff down or even eliminate it to a certain degree, it gives you so much more time to be able to read the teachings and books, to be able to attend classes, to be able to meditate, to be able to sit with your thoughts, to be able to train your mind. And you can go for extended periods of time where you get all this extra time in your life to be able to train the mind. And social media is a, a perfect example of that, that you know, you can train your mind to not need that. You know, I went through periods of time when I was training my mind where I stepped away from all of that stuff, whether it was news or entertainment or social media and all of that kind of stuff where I stepped away from it, trained the mind to be inwardly fulfilled, inwardly satisfied, not needing and dependent on things like social media. I went away from it for so long at one point, I actually had to retrain myself to understand how to use Facebook when I started coming back to it because it had changed so much in the several years that I had stopped using it. So this is possible that you can shrink your life down, you can really get dedicated and determined on the path, experience all this progress, 
And then at some point, you can gradually bring these things back in. And as you're doing it, you're doing that without craving desire attachment and your mind will be more peaceful experiencing those same things. Thank you, sir. I think that's all the questions we have at the moment. Okay. Well, I'm not going to have you read all of these, Max, um, because they're quite extensive. And for anybody who's in this program, if you guys are reading the book, you guys can read through these. Essentially what the Buddha is explaining, saying, okay, if you practice this, this first section, then this is what you'll essentially experience as a cause and effect. And he talks about our parents here and how to take care of them. He talks about teachers and how to kind of respect our teachers because here in Thailand and people who understand wisdom is the really most important thing that you can ever acquire in life, that it's very important to respect teachers. In a lot of cultures, we don't respect teachers. And therefore, we're lacking people who are interested in teaching. And society and humanity becomes less and less wise as a result. But when we show respect and appreciation to teachers and people who are willing to share wisdom, then there's more people who are interested and willing to do that and sharing wisdom. And now there's more wisdom that comes into the world and people can learn. But in environments where we're not respecting teachers, this falls by the wayside and then we lack the ability to gain wisdom as it's being handed down from person to person. So here in Thailand, not only do they respect teachers very highly, they even respect books and learning resources. They take very good care of these things because they understand that wisdom is the most important thing that you could ever acquire in life. So they really make sure that they're respecting teachers, respecting learning resources and things like this. And this is an area of our culture that we could really benefit from if we start doing that more and more and more. Something else that I'll just point out to you as we're not reading these directly, but one of the things that some people oftentimes will associate with teachings that are really far in the past is they kind of assume that people denigrated women or certain people or certain types of people. But remember, we've got a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha who's very wise and understands this natural law of gamma very well. He never denigrated anybody. He always taught people to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings, including women. And this is one of the places where you can see the Buddha teaching a particular husband. And you can apply this to a wife as well. But he's teaching this husband to honor his wife, to not disparage her, to not be unfaithful to her, to give her authority and provide her with adornments, which are like gifts, right? So the Buddha never taught to degrade women or look down on women. Oftentimes people think that he did, but those are people who aren't familiar with his teachings. They might look at the world and they might see perhaps ordained practitioners who teach that women are less of a person. That ordained practitioner might be teaching that, but that's not what the Buddha taught. So just because somebody shaved their head and they're wearing an orange robe doesn't necessarily mean that they're teaching what the Buddha actually taught. So if you go back to the original teachings of the Buddha, you can see what did he teach and what he didn't teach. And he never taught to degrade or disparage anybody, including women, because we're all equal. That's the way he taught and including a Buddha. A Buddha is equal. While other people might raise a Buddha up in the world and think that they're so high, a Buddha themselves don't 
think that way. They think of themselves as normal person, as an average person, just like everyone else. They're just fulfilling a different role in society. They're sharing teachings that lead to enlightenment. But they're just as valuable and important to a community as somebody else, like a food server or a farmer or anybody else in the world. They're just performing different roles. So here you can see in the Buddha's own words that he talks about honoring women. And this is very important because you'll hear people that will say otherwise. And they're just slandering or gossiping with a lack of understanding about the true teachings of the Buddha. But by studying the words of the Buddha, you can see the truth for yourself of what he did teach and what he didn't teach. A Buddha wouldn't teach to disparage anybody or degrade anybody. So there's all these different groups here. He talks about friends and companions. He talks about your employees, essentially, which during that time were, you know, there were servants and things like that. So he needed to teach about that since they existed during that lifetime. And then he teaches about aesthetics and Brahmin, people that are sharing teachings to help improve the world, improve people's practice. And he talks about how to practice towards those people. And through you practicing that way, this is what will be experienced as a result in terms of this natural law of gamma. So what questions do you guys have about this chapter, if anything at all? I am not seeing any questions at the time. Okay, so let's go to chapter five. Tonkin, do you want to go ahead and read it? Yes, I'll do that, Max. Four worthy deeds to be undertaken without householder without acquired by energetic striving amazed by the strength of his arms earned by the sweat of his brow righteous wealth righteously gained the noble disciple undertakes four worthy deeds but four here householder with wealth acquired by energetic striving amazed by the strength of his arms earned by the sweat of his brow righteous wealth righteously gained, the noble disciple makes himself content and pleased and properly maintains himself in contentedness. He makes his parents content and pleased and properly maintains them in contentedness. He makes his wife and children, his slaves, workers and servants content and pleased and properly maintains them in contentedness. He makes his friends and companions content and pleased and properly maintains them in contentedness. This is the first case of wealth that has gone to good use, that has been properly utilized and used for a worthy cause. Two, again, with wealth acquired by energetic striving, amazed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth righteously gained, the noble disciple makes provisions against the losses that might arise from fire, floods, kings, thieves, or displeasing hears. Uh, he makes himself secure against them. This is the second case of belt that has gone to good use, that has been properly employed and used for the worthy cause. Three, again, with wealth acquired by energetic striving, amazed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth righteously gained, the noble disciple makes the five offerings to relatives, guests, ancestors, the king, and the deities. 
This is the third case of wealth that has gone to good use, that has been properly employed and used for the abortive cause. Four, again, without acquired by energetic striving, amidst by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth righteously gained, the noble disciple establishes an uplifting offering of alms, a donation, an offering that is heavenly, resulting in contentedness conducive to heaven, to those ascetics, ascetics and Brahmins who refrain from intoxication and heedlessness, who are settled in patience and gentleness, who tame the mind, calm the mind, and train the mind for Nibbana enlightenment. This is the fourth case of wealth that has gone to good use, that has been properly employed and used for a worthy cause. These householders are the four worthy deeds that the noble disciple undertakes with wealth acquired by energetic striving, amazed by the strength of his arms, armed by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth righteously gained. But when anyone exhausts wealth on these four worthy deeds, that wealth is said to have gone to good use, to have been properly used, to have been utilized for the worthy cause. All right. Thank you, Tonka. So here the Buddha is talking about certain income that you have, certain wealth that you have, and how to use it to be able to be used in wholesome ways. Because previously he was talking about ways that it could be squandered and essentially wasting one's substance. So here, the first one, he's essentially talking about making sure that you and those close to you are whole. You, your life partner, your children, your workers, the people that are closest to you, making sure that the wealth that you have is being used in a way that is supportive to provide for the food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care for you and those people that are close to you. Because if you're not whole, then nothing in the world is going to be working well. So it's important to ensure that you, your life partner, your children, and your workers or employees, people that are supporting you, are whole. Then he talks about your protecting this income from fire, floods, kings, thieves, and displeasing heirs. Essentially, the way that we would do this nowadays is perhaps through insurance, protecting against fire and floods, or perhaps putting it into a bank or something like this. You might think about kings like the government, right? Ensuring that, I guess, during the lifetime of the Buddha, kings could probably march right into your home and take things away from you, where you can actually experience that if you're not doing things properly within a government environment, a government can actually take things from you. So that's something that you would like to protect. Uh, same thing with thieves, right? So if you have things protected in terms of like being in a bank or insurance or, you know, ensuring that there's locks on your doors, perhaps if you need those kind of things, those are all things that would help you. Displeasing heirs, the way that you protect against that is if you have a will that clearly explains what happens to your wealth after death, then what you would like to do is be able to communicate this to your heirs before you die. Oftentimes, 
if you have a certain amount of wealth, your heirs might be, you know, kind of like, okay, well, when he dies, it's all coming to me. They might have certain expectation. And then when you die, they see your will and it's something completely opposite. And now they're displeased and it might end up in a court battle or something like this, which the money then gets squandered as a result of the whole process of going to the court. But if you have a very clear will, you communicate to your children, to your life partner, to your other family members of what what you've identified as how your wealth is going to be distributed. Now they're clear on this. They can ask you questions before you die. And there's less likelihood that they're going to experience this displeasure when you actually die. So that's one of the ways to protect your wealth. The third one that the Buddha talks about here is, you know, sharing your wealth essentially with relatives, guests, ancestors, the king and the deities. Here it's basically like taking care of your relatives and guests. I'm not quite sure about this word deity. I know what it is, but I don't see anywhere else in his teachings that he talks about how to do that. It may be that we're mistranslating this in some way or another, but essentially he talks about taking care of your relatives and guests because those are people that are close to you and you would like to provide certain time, effort, energy, and resources to practice generosity and using your wealth towards helping to welcome your relatives and welcome guests into your home. Then the fourth thing that he talks about is making offerings to aesthetics and Brahmin who are refraining from intoxication, who are patient and gentle, that they're taming their mind with a calm mind and they're training their mind towards enlightenment. And this is teachers and people who are choosing to share these teachings into the world because they're going to need to sustain their life in some way that while they may offer their teachings at no cost, there is a cost associated with offering teachings such as this. So we can support these types of people and ensuring that these teachings come into the world. And the Buddha never taught to just blanketly support anybody and everybody. Here he's giving you guidance on the type of individual that you might choose to support. And by supporting this type of individual, then the teachings are allowed to come into the world because if they're training their mind towards Nibbana or they're actually enlightened, then the teachings that they're sharing are going to lead to enlightenment. And that's beneficial for lots and lots of people. Now, keep in mind that the Buddha was very rich and wealthy before he ever went on his journey to enlightenment. He was a member of a royal family. So when he stepped away from the royal family and started living his life based on donations of food, clothing, shelter, medical care, and things like this, he wasn't interested in money. He didn't choose to go on this journey to enlightenment and share the teachings in order to acquire money or acquire wealth. But he needed a certain amount of donations in order for him to be able to sustain his life. And this is also helping the students to eliminate craving, desire, attachment by practicing generosity. But notice that he puts himself as last, essentially, because he was an aesthetic or Brahmin who was sharing teachings in order to get to enlightenment. So once the person, their life partner, their children and their workers are whole, once they've protected their wealth against fire and floods and kings and those other things that he talked about, once your relatives and guests and people like this are taken care of, he's saying, okay, be sure that you share some of your wealth with these types of individuals because that's what's ultimately going to help everybody by bringing the teachings into the world more and more. So let me see what questions you guys have on this particular chapter. Sorry, I don't see any questions at the time. Okay, so we'll move to the next chapter, which is chapter 6. I can read. 
repaying one's mother and father monks there are two persons that cannot easily be repaid what two one's mother and father even if one should carry about one's mother on one's shoulder and one's father on another and while doing so should have a lifespan of a hundred years live for a hundred years and if one should attain uh, attend to them by anointing them with balms by massaging bathing and rubbing their limbs and they even void their urine and excrement there one still would not have done enough for one's parents nor would one have repaid them even if one were to establish one's parents as the supreme lords and rulers over the great earth abounding in the seven treasures one still would not have done enough for one's parents nor would one have repaid them for that for what reason parents are of great help to their children they bring them up feed them and show them the world but monks if when one's parents lack confidence, one encourages, settles, and establishes them in confidence. If when one's parents are unwholesome, one encourages, settles, and establishes them in virtuous behavior, moral conduct. If when one's parents are selfish, one encourages, settles, and establishes them in generosity. If when one's parents are unwise, one encourages, settles, and establishes them in wisdom. In such a way, one has done enough for one's parents, repaid them, and done more than enough for them. All right. Thank you, Max. So as the Buddha was explaining in a previous chapter, where obtaining this human state is very, very rare, our mother and father are instrumental in helping us to obtain this human state. They're the ones who take on this birth. And we are the ones who are being born, but they're bringing us into the world through the work and effort that they have. And then they apply this work and effort to be able to then provide us with food, clothing, shelter, and medical care. And while I'm sure that many of us may disagree with certain aspects of things that are parents did in our life. Nonetheless, they did help us to sustain our life to this point where at some point in our life, we were able to go off on our own. Whereas if at two years old, five years old, if they didn't provide us the things that we needed to sustain this life, we wouldn't be able to have this opportunity that we have now to be able to train the mind and get to enlightenment. So the Buddha is explaining here that if we took care of our parents in such a way that we actually carried them around, mother on one shoulder, father on another shoulder, and we did that for a hundred years in massaging them, bathing them, rubbing their limbs with balms, cleaning up their urine and excrement, establishing them as the rulers of the great earth and giving them all these treasures that we still haven't done enough because all of those things are just material possessions and things that are impermanent, essentially. He's saying, okay, you know, even if you did these things, you know, this isn't enough to repay our parents because our parents have been great help to us. They've brought us up, they feed us, and they show us the world. And again, even though you might have disagreed with certain things that your parents did during your life, and you might not have done things that way, they surely helped you sustain your life or you wouldn't be here alive right now. 
So the Buddha says the way that we repay our parents for this debt of gratitude that he's essentially talking about is that where we see that they lack confidence, we then encourage, settle, and establish them in confidence. And when he's talking about confidence, he's talking about when they're lacking confidence in him as being a Buddha, in his teachings and in the community because in order to be able to eliminate discontentedness and experience this better way of life one would need to have confidence so we can encourage subtle and establish them in confidence and if you've done that a few times and they're just not interested then you wouldn't continue to do that right if you've tried two or three times to talk to your parents about buddhism and they're just completely rejecting it wholeheartedly if you continue to pursue that would be your craving desire attachment but if you are indifferent and you never tried to help them at all then you haven't done what you need to do in order to repay them so you take this middle way or you maybe try two or three times but then ultimately if they're not interested then they're not interested and you just let it go if when one's parents are unwholesome you then encourage settle and establish them in moral conduct or virtuous behavior where you see them struggling maybe they're lying or maybe they have profanity or maybe they have racism or hatred or anger towards a certain group maybe you decide to help them to understand more virtuous behavior or moral conduct where you see that they're selfish you might decide to encourage settle and establish them in generosity teaching them the giving and sharing because this is going to help them to eliminate craving desire attachment and then when you see that they're unwise then you might decide to establish them in wisdom and the wisdom is the wisdom of these teachings so that will help you to then repay this debt of gratitude to your parents and kind of give them back things that they've actually given you they've given you life and sustaining your life and oftentimes when teachings are coming into a new community the children can potentially learn the teachings before the parents and now it's kind of up to us to humbly respectfully and politely share the teachings back with our parents but in a place like thailand where these teachings have been here for many centuries the parents oftentimes know these teachings very well, and then they're sharing them with the children. But there are some situations where the children know the teachings or learn the teachings more closely than the parents do, even here in Thailand. And then we need to humbly, respectfully, politely share the teachings back with our parents. And that's where the Buddha says, okay, now you've done enough for your parents if you've tried to repay them in this way. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Tonka has her hand raised. Go ahead, Tonka. Thank you, Max. I was wondering if parents are not alive, is there anything we can do to kind of cultivate that uh, gratitude? And uh, uh, like, is there anything we, we could do? There's nothing you can do at this point to help them because they're already gone. There's no interaction that you have. The only thing that you can do is just have those fun memories, that gratitude, that appreciation, the things that they taught you that were very beneficial for your life. Practice those things, and that's a way to honor and respect people who have passed away, is that as they've given you wisdom and the time that they've spent with you during their life, now by you practicing their teachings, that's the best way to respect and honor someone who's passed away. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. I believe that's all the questions we have at this time. Okay, so let's go to chapter 7. I can read that one. Affection and hatred are born. Affection born from affection. 
Here marks one person is desirable, lovable, and agreeable to another. Others treat that person in a way that is desirable, lovable, and agreeable. It offers to the latter. Others treat that person who is disagreeable, lovable, and agreeable to me in a way that is desirable, lovable, and agreeable. He thus feels affection for them. It is in this way that affection is born from affection. To hatred born from affection. Here monks, one person is desirable, lovable, and agreeable to another. Others treat that person in a way that is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable. It occurs to the latter. Others treat that person who is desirable, lovable, and agreeable to me in a way that is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable. He thus feels hatred for them. It is in this way that hatred is born from affection. 3. Affection born from hatred. Here monks, one person is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable to another. Others treat that person in a way that is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable. It occurs to the latter. Others treat that person who is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable to me in a way that is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable. He thus feels affection for them. It is in this way that affection is born from hatred. 4. Hatred born from hatred. Here monks, one person is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable to another. Others treat that person in a way that is desirable, lovable, and agreeable. It occurs to the latter. Others treat that person who is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable to me in a way that is desirable, lovable, and agreeable. He thus feels hatred for them. It is in this way that hatred is born from hatred. All right. Thank you, Tonka. So let me help you understand what the Buddha is doing here is he's cluing you into how the unenlightened mind tends to function. That this first one, what he's talking about is there's a certain person, let's call that person, person A, and you have feelings that are desirable, lovable, and agreeable towards person A. And then there's these other people who also have these desirable, lovable, and agreeable feelings towards person A. And because of that, affection is born from affection. You have affection for these other people because they also have these desirable, lovable, and agreeable feelings about person A. And you have those same desirable, lovable, and agreeable feelings towards person A. Then with the second one, hatred born from affection, you have a certain affection, this desirable, lovable, agreeable feelings for person A. But other people see that person as undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable. Therefore, you have hatred towards those other people because they hate somebody who you feel affection for. And therefore, your hatred is born out of the affection that you have for person A. 
Then there's the third option here, which is you see somebody as undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable. And then these other people also see that person as undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable. And therefore you have affection for those other people based on you having hatred towards person A, they have hatred towards person A, so therefore you have affection for these other people. And then there's hatred born from hatred, where you look at person A as undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable, but other people look at them as desirable, lovable, and agreeable. They have affection for person A. And now you hate those other people because they feel affection towards somebody that you hate. And essentially, by the time you get to enlightenment, your mind shouldn't be doing this at all. But in the unenlightened state, your mind might do this right now, that you might feel affection towards someone just because they have affection towards someone that you feel affectionate towards. Or you might have hatred towards somebody who is hateful towards somebody that you have affection towards. Or you might have affection towards somebody who hates somebody that you hate. Or you might hate somebody who has affection towards somebody that you find hateful. But you would like to get to the point where you have loving kindness and compassion for all beings and your mind is no longer doing this. So the Buddha is cluing you into how your attachments to a particular person can arise either hatred or affection in your mind based on this attachment that you have to somebody. So if you absolutely think your mom's the best person in the world and you have an attachment to her and somebody has affection towards mom, you might have affection towards them because they have affection towards your mom. But if they hate your mom, you might now hate them because they hate your mom. And this isn't the way that you should function. If somebody hates your mom, that's their hate but you hating them back isn't actually solving anything here. So you should practice loving kindness and compassion for all beings. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? I do not see any questions at this time. Okay. So now we have this chapter eight. If somebody is able to read this, you can read this. I can go ahead and read it. Okay. The foremost, the best, the distinguished, the supreme, and the finest householder, householder, the one enjoying sensual pleasures who seeks wealth righteously without violence and makes himself joyful and pleased and shares it and does meritorious deeds and uses that wealth without being tied to it, obsessed with it, and blindly absorbed in it seeing the danger in it and understanding the escape he may be praised on four grounds the first ground on which he may be praised is that he seeks wealth righteously without violence the second ground on which he may be praised is that he makes himself joyful and pleased the third ground on which he may be praised is that he shares the wealth and does meritorious deeds the fourth ground on which he may be praised is that he uses that wealth without being tied to it, obsessed with it, and blindly absorbed in it, seeing the danger in it, and understanding the escape. This person who enjoys sensual pleasures may be praised on these four grounds. This householder is the foremost, the best, 
the distinguished, the supreme, and the finest kind of person who enjoys sensual pleasures. Just as from a cow comes milk, from milk curd, from curd butter, from butter ghee, and from ghee comes cream of ghee, which is reckoned the foremost of all these, so too this kind of person who enjoys sensual pleasures is the uh, is the foremost, the best, the distinguished, the supreme, and the finest of all those who seek wealthy, righteously, without violence, and having obtained it, makes himself joyful and pleased and shares the wealth and does meritorious deeds and uses that wealth without being tied to it, obsessed with it, and blindly absorbed in it, seeing the danger in it, and understanding the escape. Okay, thank you, Max. So here the Buddha is talking about the craving, desire, attachment to money and to wealth, and that as long as that's there, the individual is not going to get to enlightenment. So an individual needs to train the mind to not be obsessed and blindly absorbed in their wealth. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to experience this enlightened mental state. So he talks about, firstly, this great household practitioner who would be able to seek wealth righteously, meaning practicing right livelihood without violence, without harm to other beings is essentially what he's talking about. Then once that wealth is obtained, he talks about ensuring that you are joyful and pleased with the wealth that you've acquired and that you take care of the things that you need to take care of, whether it's food, water, clothing, shelter, medical care, or other things that you might need. Then he talks about sharing your wealth and doing meritorious deeds. This is practicing generosity. So you would like to practice generosity towards all beings, and part of that would include with money and wealth. And then he also talks about it in terms of merit. What merit is, is practicing generosity towards the continued sharing of the teachings of the Buddha. So you might practice giving your time, effort, energy, or resources. Because if you're finding certain value in learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha, the reason why you're experiencing this value in these teachings is that for 2,500 years, people have been sharing these teachings and practicing generosity from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. And they're only reaching you because people before you decided that they were going to practice generosity and share these teachings from one person to the next. And now if you would like to see these teachings help future generations, then your practice of meritorious deeds will help ensure that these teachings are available for future generations. And then he talks about practicing where you're not tied to the wealth. You're not obsessed by it, blindly absorbed in it, seeing the danger in having this craving, desire, attachment towards the wealth and understanding that the escape is training the mind to practice generosity. Typically, when the Buddha is talking about the escape, he's talking about the Eightfold Path because the escape is to get out of the cycle of rebirth. And the way that you do that is through the Eightfold Path. But here specifically, the escape from being obsessed and blindly absorbed in wealth is practicing generosity, which is part of the Eightfold Path. But usually more generally, when he's talking about the escape, he's talking about the Eightfold Path itself. But here it's more specific that it's actually the practice of generosity. And when somebody's practicing in that way, the Buddha explains this continuous progression of how this milk 
becomes milk curd, curd butter, butter ghee, ghee, and cream of ghee. People during the lifetime of the Buddha would understand taking this raw milk and then refining it to the point where it becomes this highly valuable, highly desirable product of cream of ghee. And this is like the best thing that you could accomplish from this raw milk. And the same thing is what the Buddha is describing is as a household practitioner, practicing these four aspects, that this person is the foremost householder, an individual who's practicing very well. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? I don't believe there are questions at the moment. Okay. Well, what I'm going to do with these last two chapters is I'm going to go ahead and read them and then I'm going to teach as I'm going so that I can kind of help you guys to learn this rather than the way that we have been doing it. So this chapter nine, which is titled Welfare and Peacefulness in This Present Life, the Buddha is going to provide you teachings to help you experience peacefulness in this present life. It reads, Venerable Sir, We are householders, enjoying sensual pleasures, living at home in a house full of children. We use sandalwood from Kasi. We wear garlands, scents, and ointments. We receive gold and silver. Let the perfectly enlightened one teach us the teachings in a way that will lead to our welfare and peacefulness in this present life and in future lives. There are, student, these four things that lead to the welfare and peacefulness of a householder in this present life. What for? One, accomplishment and initiative. Two, accomplishment and protection. Three, wholesome friendship. Four, in balanced living. Accomplishment and initiative. And what is accomplishment and initiative? Here, whatever may be the means by which a householder earns his living, whether by farming, trade, raising cattle, archery, government service, or some other craft, he is skillful and diligent. He possesses sound and wise decision-making about it in order to carry out and arrange it properly. This is called accomplishment and initiative. What he's talking about here is whatever work that you have is to show initiative to cultivate your skills and become skillful in the work that you're doing. Because by becoming very skillful in the work that you're doing and doing that very well and very diligently, you'll be able to acquire more and more income through your reputation of delivering quality products through whatever trade it is that you're choosing to function, whatever livelihood you choose. Then with that, the next thing that's gonna lead to peacefulness is accomplishment and protection. And what is accomplishment and protection? Here, a householder sets up protection and guard over the wealth he has acquired by initiative and energy, amassed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth righteously gained, thinking, how can I prevent kings and thieves from taking it, fire from burning it, floods from sweeping it away, in displeasing heirs from taking it? This is called accomplishment and protection. So once you've applied the skill and you've acquired the wealth, now protecting it so that it doesn't just get blown away essentially or thrown out in the street based on what we talked about previously from kings, from fire, floods, and displeasing heirs. And I talked about how you might do that. Then he talks about wholesome friendship. This is what's gonna lead to your peacefulness is having and cultivating wholesome friends. And what is wholesome friendship? Here, in whatever village or town a householder lives, he associates with householders 
or their sons, whether young but of mature virtue or old and of mature virtue, who are accomplished in confidence, virtuous behavior, moral conduct, generosity, and in wisdom. He converses with them and engages in discussions with them. To the extent that they are accomplished in confidence, he emulates them with respect to their accomplishment in confidence. To the extent that they are accomplished in virtuous behavior or moral conduct, he emulates them with respect to their accomplishment in virtuous behavior. To the extent that they are accomplished in generosity, he emulates them with their accomplishment in generosity. To the extent that they are accomplished in wisdom, he emulates them with respect to their accomplishment in wisdom. This is called wholesome friendship. So what he's talking about here is cultivating wholesome relationships where people are virtuous, where they have this confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, the community, where they have this moral conduct and they're making wise decisions around their moral conduct or virtuous behavior, where they're practicing generosity and they have wisdom. These are four qualities that are very wise to be able to learn from other people and then to emulate that or use them as a role model. And involving people in your life like this will help you to create peacefulness and welfare in this present life. And then lastly, the fourth thing that he recommends is this balanced living. And what is balanced living? Here, a householder knows his income and expenditures and leads a balanced life, neither too extravagant nor too frugal. In this way, my income will exceed my expenditures rather than the reverse. Just as an appraiser or his apprentice holding up a scale knows by so much it has dipped down, by so much it has gone up, so a householder knows his income and expenditures and leads a balanced life, neither too extravagant nor too frugal. In this way, my income will exceed my expenditures rather than the reverse. If this householder has a small income but lives luxuriously, others would say of him, this householder eats his wealth just as an eater of figs. But if he has a large income but lives sparingly, Others would say of him, this householder may even starve himself. But it is called balanced living when a householder knows his income and expenditures and leads a balanced life, neither too extravagant nor too frugal. In this way, my income will exceed my expenditures rather than the reverse. This is called balanced living. These are the four things that lead to welfare and peacefulness of a householder in this very life. So what the Buddha is describing here is making sure your income is higher than your expenditures. Because if you've ever lived life in the other way around, where your expenditures are higher than your income, that becomes very uncomfortable and there's a lot of pressure in that situation. You might be incurring a lot of debt and taking on certain loans or credit card debts and things like this. And this can put a lot of pressure on you and it's very hard for you to get to this peacefulness and joy of the enlightened mental state if you've got collectors and debitors that are coming after you for money that you owe. So by knowing your income and knowing your expenditures and keeping your income above your expenditures, this allows you to live a balanced lifestyle and get to the point where you're not 
just holding on to your money and being super frugal, but you're also not haphazardly spending it either. And you can live this middle way where you're able to have your income higher than your expenditures. This is what's going to lead to your peacefulness, making sure that you have certain skills and you're diligent in applying those skills in the workforce, that any income that you acquire, that you protect it, that you cultivate wholesome relationships and that you cultivate those relationships with people who have confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, the community that have certain wholesome and virtuous behavior and moral conduct, who are generous and have wisdom. And then you live your life in such a way that your income is higher than your expenditures. And this is what's going to lead to your peacefulness in this life. The Buddha is explaining to you the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect. He's not telling you what to do. He's not giving you rules. He's just helping you see with clarity how to live a wholesome life and a peaceful life. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? I don't believe there are questions, sir. Um, Tonka has her hand raised. I was just wondering about the saving when we are talking about finances. I find a lot of people around me live paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. Like they are not necessarily spending more than they are, but they spend almost everything. I personally find it very stressful. So uh, I try to have some saving for rainy days. And that gives me peace of mind. And I'm wondering if Buddha ever talked about saving, also saving uh, for retirement so we are not burdening uh, others in our old age. Like, is there a place for, for that kind of things in Buddha's teaching? Yeah, he talks about these kind of things. And one of the things that I observed that when I was working in getting a steady income is that I would always be sure that I have three to six months worth of expenses in the bank for savings so that when I went to work each day, if I got laid off or I got fired or the company just went out of business, I knew that I had three to six months worth of money to be able to sustain my life, that I had that amount of time to be able to find a new job. And I worked in a field where I could usually find a new job in like two weeks, you know, maximum. Uh, Oftentimes within a week I was doing IT, I could find a new job. So by having three to six months worth of savings, I always felt secure going into work. And I always felt like I could apply my skills and I could speak the honest truth about what it is that I needed to apply in the business environment. Because if I got to a point where the company went out of business or people got laid off or things like this, and I did experience those kind of things at different times in my career, I was completely fine when I found out about these kind of things happening because I had the savings to be able to take care of my life and purchasing the things that I need. So if we live paycheck to paycheck, while we might be living that way now, somebody might be doing that, you can gradually build up to the point where if you know that it's going to take you two weeks or a month to find a new job, you should probably store away, you know, two or three months worth of income so that you have this as a nest egg should anything ever go wrong. And you might even decide to save up more than that. And this can give you some safety and security before you experience hard times where you might get laid off or company goes out of business or something like this. So this is going to help bring peacefulness to your life. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. I believe that is all the questions right now. Okay, this next chapter is actually connected to this one. So I'll go ahead and 
teach this one as well, read it and teach it at the same time. This one's titled Four Things Leading to the Welfare and Peacefulness in Future Lives. Now, the interesting thing about what the Buddha taught about what leads to peacefulness in future lives is it's the exact same things that lead to enlightenment in this life. So you would like to learn these kind of things when he talks about this, not because you're interested in a future life, but because you're interested in getting to enlightenment in this life. So this is what's going to lead to a better life in this life so that you can actually get to enlightenment. So here he shares, there are student, these four other things that lead to a householder's welfare and peacefulness in future lives. What for? One, accomplishment and confidence. Two, accomplishment in virtuous behavior. Three, accomplishment in generosity. And four, accomplishment in wisdom. And what is accomplishment in confidence? Here, a householder is endowed with confidence. He places confidence in the enlightenment of the Tathagata. Thus, the perfectly enlightened one is an arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true wisdom and conduct, fortunate, knower of the world, unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of heavenly beings and humans, the fortunate one, the perfectly enlightened one. This is called accomplishment and confidence. So we've talked about this in today's class, what confidence is. And oftentimes the Buddha talks about confidence in him, the teachings in the community. Here he's just choosing to talk about confidence in him. But what you would ultimately like to do is build this confidence in him, his teachings in the community, because that's what's going to help you to eliminate doubt, that fetter of doubt. And the way that you do that is through investigating the teachings. You learn you reflect and you practice the teachings. And then as you see the condition of the mind improving, you gain this confidence in him, his teachings, the community, your teacher, and your own ability to attain enlightenment. Then the next one here, and what is accomplishment in virtuous behavior or moral conduct? Here, a householder abstains from the destruction of life, from taking what is not given, from sexual misconduct, from false speech, and from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, substances that cause heedlessness, the basis for heedlessness. This is called accomplishment in virtuous behavior. So here he's pointing to the five precepts, and there he expands his explanation and teachings on the five precepts because that's like a baseline minimum of virtuous behavior or moral conduct that you would like to practice for yourself and anybody that you include in your life you would like to be sure that they're practicing these as a minimum too because your decision to be their friend or include as your employees or people around you in any shape or fashion, if people aren't practicing these things, it's going to lead to unwholesome results. So they might not have learned them as the five precepts, but these things are often taught in other settings as well. So you would like to be sure that people that you include in your life as personal friends or in a workplace or an environment where you're working, that people are practicing these five basic aspects of virtuous behavior or moral conduct. And that's going to lead to your peacefulness in this life and in future lives as well. And what is accomplishment in generosity? Here, a householder resides at home with a mind free of the stain of selfishness, freely generous, open-handed, joyful in letting go, one devoted to charity, joyful in giving and sharing. 
This is called accomplishment and generosity. So this is ensuring that you're training the mind to let go of selfishness, no longer be selfish. Because as long as you're holding on to things very tightly, you're going to find it very challenging to ever get to enlightenment. So practicing generosity with your time, effort, energy, and resources will help you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and ultimately get to enlightenment through eliminating selfishness. And what is accomplishment and wisdom? Here, a householder is wise. He possesses the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of discontentedness. This is called accomplishment and wisdom. These are the four other things that lead to the welfare and peacefulness of a householder in future lives. So what the Buddha is talking about here related to this aspect of wisdom is the discerning of arising and passing away. What he's pointing to is the universal truth of impermanence. That's understanding that things arise, change, and fade away. This is the very first teaching on the path to enlightenment. And this is where you understand that the unenlightened mind is craving permanence. And this is the whole thing that's keeping it stuck in this whole cycle of discontentedness and this whole cycle of rebirth is that it doesn't understand the universal truth of impermanence, which ultimately leads to discontentedness because of the cravings, desires, attachments for permanence. So when he's talking about wisdom here, he's just talking about the very beginning of the path to enlightenment, which is the universal truth of impermanence. This is the very first thing that he's pointing to. But in terms of getting to enlightenment, you would need to understand wisdom much deeper than just the universal truth of impermanence. And when he typically talks about wisdom, he talks about the totality of the teachings because that's what's ultimately going to lead to the end of discontentedness. But it all starts with this understanding of the universal truth of impermanence. And the Buddha is saying that that's noble penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of discontentedness. Without the understanding of the universal truth of impermanence, you wouldn't be able to actually eliminate discontentedness because that's the whole underlying problem is that the unenlightened mind is craving permanence while it's living in an impermanent world. And as long as the mind's doing that, it's not going to be able to experience peacefulness. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? I do not see any questions, sir. Okay. Well, we've started this new book today, and next week we're going to be in chapters 11 through chapters 20. So you're welcome to read those prior to class. And then not only are you reading the words of the Buddha, but you're also reading the reflections that I'm sharing with you as well. And then perhaps this will spur certain thoughts and certain questions as you're reading these chapters and you're exploring them. And remember that it's best to read just like 10, 15 minutes a day, which is essentially like maybe one or two chapters a day. Because if you sat down and read for a whole hour or hour and a half, which is what it takes to probably read the 10 chapters, that's a lot of content to digest at one time. So if you're just trickling the teachings into the mind little by little, like 10, 15 minutes a day, and you kind of get used to this, what you'll observe is probably what I observed, is that as I was understanding the teachings of the Buddha in this way, it was like two or three days later that I would then encounter something that I was just reading about. And I had the answers to what I needed because I had just read it two or three days prior. 
Or there were situations where I would experience something and then two or three days later or a week later, I would be reading something that I experienced like a week ago and the Buddha was giving me the answers of how I could have handled that situation better. So if you get in the habit of not only meditating and coming to classes, but also reading just 10 or 15 minutes a day, then you're trickling and kind of dripping these teachings into the mind and you'll see that the mind will assimilate to these teachings and be able to apply them in daily life because you have more time to reflect and allow the mind to breathe, so to speak. Whereas if you're trying to cram it all in in a two-hour class and you're not reading the reflections or you're trying to cram it in in one hour, an hour and a half of reading, you're not able to sit with the teachings, reflect on them, digest them, and apply them in life. So that's what I would suggest for you. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're going to be in volume one, chapter four, where we're studying the Four Noble Truths establishing right view. This is the very beginning of the path to enlightenment where anybody who's interested in deeply understanding the teachings that lead to enlightenment would need to really start here. This is the real starting point of the path to enlightenment. I'm going to be sharing the three universal truths, which includes the universal truth of impermanence. And then we're going to be moving into the Four Noble Truths. And if you've heard that a few times and you feel like you need a refresher and you'd like to go through that some more, this is your opportunity tomorrow. Or if you've never learned the Four Noble Truths, this will be an excellent opportunity for you to be able to learn that. Then on Wednesday, I'm going to be starting the chanting part of our group learning program where I'm going to be doing four classes to help build you up to learn and practice chanting. So thank you all for joining for the class today and participating. Thank you to Tonka and Max for moderating. I appreciate your efforts there. And uh, we'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.